Chapter Ten of Companionable Books by Henry Van Dyke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, Samuel Johnson, a sturdy believer. When James Boswell, Esquire, wrote *The Life of Samuel Johnson*, LL.D., he not only achieved his purpose of giving the world a rich intellectual treasure, but also succeeded in making himself a subject of permanent literary interest. Among the good things which the year 1922 has brought to us, I count the Boswell Redivivus from the industrious and skillful hand of Professor Chauncey Brewster Tinker of Yale. He calls his excellent book, which is largely enriched with new material in the way of hitherto unpublished letters, Young Boswell. This does not mean that he deals only with the early years, amatory episodes, and first literary ventures of Johnson's inimitable biographer, but that he sees in the man a certain persistent youngness which accounts for the exuberance of his faults and follies as well as for the enthusiasm of his hero-worship mr tinker does not attempt to camouflage the incorrigible absurdities of boswell's disposition nor the excesses of his conduct but finds an explanation if not an excuse for them in the fact that he had a juvenile temperament which inclined him all through life to self-esteem and self-indulgence and kept him very much a boy until he died of it whether this is quite consistent with his being in fullest truth a genius as mr tinker claims may be doubted for genius in the high sense is something that ripens if time be given it but what is certain beyond a question is that this vain and vagarious little scotch laird had in him a gift of observation a talent of narration and above all a power of generous admiration which enabled him to become by dint of hard work what macaulay entitled him the first of biographers Ever since it appeared in 1791, Boswell's Life of Johnson has been a most companionable book. Reprinted again and again, it finds a perennial welcome. To see it in a new edition is no more remarkable nowadays than it once was to see Dr. Oliver Goldsmith in a new or vivid waistcoat. For my own part, I prefer it handsomely dressed, with large type, liberal margins, and a plenty of illustrations, for it is not a book in which economy of bulk is needful. It is less suitable for company on a journey or a fishing trip than for a meditative hour in the library after dinner, or a pleasant wakeful hour in bed when the reading lamp glows clear and steady, and all the rest of the family are asleep or similarly engaged in recumbent reading. There are some books with which we can never become intimate. However long we may know them, they keep us on the cold threshold of acquaintance. Others boisterously grasp our hand and drag us in only to bore us and make us regret the day of our introduction. But if there ever was a book which invited genially to friendship and delight, it is this of Boswell's. The man who does not know it is ignorant of some of the best cheer that can enliven a solitary fireside. The man who does not enjoy it is insensible alike to the attractions of a noble character vividly depicted, and to the amusement afforded by the sight of a great genius in company with an adoring follower capable, at times, of acting like an engaging ass. Yet after all, I have always had my doubts about the supposed asinity of Boswell. As his great friend said, a man who talks nonsense so well must know that he is talking nonsense. It is only fair to accept his own explanation and allow that when he said, or did ridiculous things, it was, partly at least, in order to draw out his tremendous companion. Thus we may think with pleasure of Boswell taking a rise out of johnson but we do not need to imagine johnson taking a rise out of boswell 
it was not necessary, for he rose of his own accord. He made a candid record of those diverting incidents because, though self-complacent, he was not touchy, and he had sense enough to see that the sure way to be entirely entertaining is to be quite frank. Boswell threw a stone at one bird and brought down two. His triumphant effort to write the life of his immense hero just as it was, with all its surroundings, appurtenances, and eccentricities, has won for himself a singular honor. His proper name has become a common noun. It is hardly necessary to use a capital letter when we allude to a Boswell. His pious boast that he had Johnsonized the land is no more correct than it would be to say, and if he were alive he would certainly say it, that he has Boswellized biography. The success of the book appears the more remarkable when we remember that of the seventy-five years of Samuel Johnson's life, not more than two years and two months were passed in the society of James Boswell. Yet one would almost think that they had been rocked in the same cradle, or, if this figure of speech seem irreverent, that the Laird of Auchinleck had slept in a little trundle-bed beside the couch of the mighty lexicographer. I do not mean by this that the record is trivial and subicular, but simply that Boswell has put into his book as much of Johnson as it will hold. Let no one imagine, however, that a like success can be secured by following the same recipe with any chance subject. The exact portraiture of an insignificant person confers information where there is no curiosity, and becomes tedious in proportion as it is precise. The first thing that is needful is to catch a giant for your hero, and in this little world it is seldom that one like Johnson comes to the net. What a man he was, this old struggler, as he called himself! How uncouth and noble and genuine and profound! A laboring, working mind, an indolent, reposing body! What a heart of fortitude in the bosom of his melancholy! What a kernel of human kindness within the shell of his rough manner! He was proud, but not vain, sometimes rude, but never cruel. His prejudices were insular, but his intellect was continental. There was enough of contradiction in his character to give it variety, and enough of sturdy faith to give it unity. It was not easy for him to be good, but it was impossible for him to be false, and he fought the battle of life through along his chosen line even to the last skirmish of mortality. I suppose we Americans might harbor a grudge against him on the score of his opinion of our forefathers. It is on record that he said of them, during their little controversy with King George the Third, that they were a race of convicts, how exciting it would have been to hear him say a thing like that to the face of George Washington or Benjamin Franklin. He was quite capable of it. But we can afford to laugh at such an obiter dictum now. And upon my honesty it offends me less at the present time than Lionel Lipsingly Nutt's condescending advice on poetry and politics, or Stutterworth Bummel's patronizing half-praise. Let a man smite us fairly on one cheek, and we can manage to turn the other out of his reach." But if he deals superciliously with us poor relations, we can hardly help looking for a convenient and not too dangerous flight of stairs for his speedy descent. Johnson may be rightly claimed as a Tory Democrat on the strength of his serious saying that the interest of millions must ever prevail over that of thousands, and the temper of his pungent letter to Lord Chesterfield, and when we consider also his side remark in defense of card-playing on the ground that it generates kindness and consolidates society, we may differ from him in our estimate of the game, but we cannot deny that in small things, as well as in great, he spoke as a liberal friend of humanity. His literary taste was not infallible, 
in some instances for example his extreme laudation of sir john denham's poem cooper's hill and his adverse criticism of milton's verse it was very bad in general you may say that it was based upon theories and rules which are not really of universal application though he conceived them to be so but his style was much more the product of his own personality and genius ponderous it often was but seldom clumsy he had the art of saying what he meant in a deliberate clear forceful way words arrayed themselves at his command and moved forward in serried flanks he had the praiseworthy habit of completing his sentences and building his paragraphs firmly it will not do us any good to belittle his merit as a writer particularly in this age of slipper-shod and dressing-gowned english his diction was much more varied than people usually suppose he could suit his manner to almost any kind of subject except possibly the very lightest he had a keen sense of the shading of synonyms and rarely picked the wrong word of antithesis and balanced sentence he was overfond and this device intended originally to give a sharpened emphasis being used too often lends an air of monotony to his writing yet it has its merits too as may be seen in these extracts from the fifteenth number of the rambler extracts which by the way have some relation to a controversy still raging every old man complains of the growing depravity of the world of the petulance and insolence of the rising generation he recounts the decency and regularity of former times and celebrates the discipline and sobriety of the age in which his youth was passed a happy age which is now no more to be expected since confusion has broken in upon the world and thrown down all the boundaries of civility and reverence it may therefore very reasonably be suspected that the old draw upon themselves the greatest part of those insults which they so much lament and that age is rarely despised but when it is contemptible he that would pass the latter part of his life with honour and decency must when he is young consider that he shall one day be old and remember when he is old that he has once been young in youth he must lay up knowledge for his support when his powers of action shall forsake him and in age forbear to animadvert with rigour on faults which experience only can correct in meaning this is very much the same as sir james barry's recent admirable discourse on courage at the university of st andrews but in manner there is quite a difference it is commonly supposed that dr johnson did a great deal to overload and oppress the english language by introducing new and awkward words of monstrous length his opportunities in that way were large but he always claimed that he had used them with moderation and had not coined above four or five words we note that perigenity was one of them we are grateful that he refrained so much but we remember that clubable was another and we are glad that he did not refrain altogether for there is no quality more easy to recognize and difficult to define than that which makes a man acceptable in a club and of this dr johnson has given us a fine example in his life and an appropriate name in his word i think one reason why he got on so well with people who differed from him and why most of the sensible ones so readily put up with his downright and often brusque way of expressing his sentiments was because they came so evidently from his sincere and unshakable conviction that certain things are true that they cannot be changed and that they should not be forgotten not only in politics but also and more significantly in religion samuel johnson stands out as a sturdy believer it seems the more noteworthy when we consider the conditions of his life there is hardly one among the great men of history who can be called so distinctively a man of letters 
undoubtedly none who has won as high a position and as large a contemporary influence by sheer strength of pen now the literary life is not generally considered to be especially favorable to the cultivation of religion and johnson's peculiar circumstances were not of a kind to make it more favorable in his case than usual he was poor and neglected struggling during a great part of his career against the heaviest odds his natural disposition was by no means such as to predispose him to faith he was afflicted from childhood with a hypochondriac and irritable humor a high domineering spirit housed in an unwieldy and disordered body plagued by inordinate physical appetites inclined naturally to rely with overconfidence upon the strength and accuracy of his reasoning powers driven by his impetuous temper into violent assertions and controversy deeply depressed by his long years of obscurity and highly elated by his final success he was certainly not one whom we would select as likely to be a remarkably religious man carlyle had less to embitter him goethe had no more to excuse self-idolatry and yet beyond a doubt johnson was a sincere humble and in the main consistent christian of course we cannot help seeing that his peculiarities and faults affected his religion he was intolerant in his expression of theological views to a degree which seems almost ludicrous we may perhaps keep a straight face and a respectful attitude when we see him turning his back on the abbe reynal and refusing to shake hands with an infidel but when he exclaims in regard to a young lady who had left the church of england to become a quaker i hate the wench and shall ever hate her i hate all impudence of a chit apostasy i nauseate and when he answers the gently expressed hope of a friend that he and the girl would meet after all in a blessed eternity by saying madam i am not fond of meeting fools anywhere we cannot help joining in the general laughter of the company to whom he speaks and as the doctor himself finally laughs and becomes cheerful and entertaining we feel that it was only the bear in him that growled an honest beast but sometimes very surly as for his remarkable strictures upon presbyterianism his declaration that he preferred the roman catholic church his expressed hope that john knox was buried in the highway and his wish that a dangerous steeple in edinburgh might not be taken down because if it were let alone it might fall on some of the posterity of john knox which he said would be no great matter if when we read these things we remember that he was talking to his scotch friend boswell we get a new idea of the audacity of the great man's humor i believe he even stirred up his natural high churchism to rise rampant and roar vigorously for the pleasure of seeing boswell's eyes stand out and his neat little pigtail vibrate in dismay there are many other sayings of johnson's which disclose a deeper vein of tolerance such as that remark about the essential agreement and trivial differences of all christians and his warm commendation on his dying bed of the sermons of dr samuel clark a dissenting minister but even suppose we are forced to admit that dr johnson was lacking in that polished liberality that willingness to admit that every other man's opinions are as good as his own which we have come nowadays to regard as the chief of the theological virtues even suppose that we must call him narrow we must admit at the same time that he was deep he had a profundity of conviction a sincerity of utterance which made of his religion something as the germans say to take hold of with your hands he had need of a sturdy belief with that tempestuous unruly disposition of his boiling all the time within him living in the age of chesterfield and bolingbroke fighting his way through the world amid a thousand difficulties and temptations he had great need to get a firm grip upon some realities of religion and hold fast to them as things that were settled 
his first conviction of the truth of christianity came to him while he was at oxford through a casual reading of law's call to the unconverted there were some years after that he tells us when he was totally regardless of religion but sickness and trouble brought it back and i hope he says that i have never lost it since he was not unwilling to converse with friends at fitting opportunities in regard to religious subjects and no one who heard him could have remained long in doubt as to the nature of his views there was one conversation in particular on the subject of the sacrifice of christ at the close of which he solemnly dictated to his friend a brief statement of his belief saying finally the peculiar doctrine of christianity is that of a universal sacrifice and a perpetual propitiation other prophets only proclaimed the will and the threatenings of god christ satisfied his justice again one calm bright sunday afternoon when he was in a boat with some friends upon the sea i think it was during his journey to the hebrides he fell into discourse with boswell about the fear of death which was often very terrible to his mind he would not admit that the close of life ought to be regarded with cheerfulness or indifference or that a rational man should be as willing to leave the world as to go out of a show-room after it has been seen no sir said he there is no rational principle in which a man can die contented but a trust in the mercy of god through the merits of jesus christ he was not ashamed to say that he was afraid to die he assumed no braggadocio before the grave he was honest with himself and he felt that he needed all the fortitude of a religious faith to meet the hour of dissolution and the prospect of divine judgment without flinching he could never have understood the attitude of men who saunter as unconcernedly and airily towards the day of judgment as if they were going to the play but johnson was by no means given to unseasonable or unreasonable religious discourse he had a holy horror of cant and of unprofitable controversy he said once of a friend who was more loquacious than discreet why yes sir he will introduce religious discourse without seeing whether it will end in instruction and improvement or produce some profane jest he would introduce it in the company of wilkes and twenty more such it was dr johnson's custom to keep a book of prayers and meditations for his own private use these were printed after his death and they revealed to us the sincerity of his inner life as nothing else could do think of the old man kneeling down in his room before he began the painful labors of a studious day and repeating this prayer against inquisitive and perplexing thoughts o lord my maker and protector who hast graciously sent me into this world to work out my salvation enable me to drive from me all such unquiet and perplexing thoughts as may mislead or hinder me in the practice of those duties which thou hast required when i behold the works of thy hands and consider the course of thy providence give me grace always to remember that thy thoughts are not my thoughts nor thy ways my ways and while it shall please thee to continue me in this world where much is to be done and little to be known teach me by thy holy spirit to withdraw my mind from unprofitable and dangerous inquiries from difficulties vainly curious and doubts impossible to be solved let me rejoice in the light which thou hast imparted let me serve thee with active zeal and humble confidence and wait with patient expectation for the time in which the soul thou receivest shall be satisfied with knowledge grant this o lord for jesus christ's sake amen these are honest and sensible petitions and the more a man knows the more devoted he is to serious and difficult studies the more he ought to feel the need of just such a divine defence and guidance 
it is good to be kept on the track it is wise to mistrust your own doubts it is happy to be delivered from them the fundamental quality of dr johnson's religion was the sense of reverence he was never known to utter the name of god but on proper occasions and with due respect he approached the consideration of divine things with genuine solemnity and could not tolerate sacred trifling or pious profanity he was not ashamed to kneel where men could see him although he never courted their notice or to pray where men could hear him although he did not desire their approbation any more than he feared their ridicule there were grave faults and errors in his conduct but no one has so keen a sense of their unworthiness as the man himself who was bravely fighting against them and sincerely lamenting their recurrence they often tripped him and humiliated him but they never got him completely down he righted himself and went laboring on he never sold his heart to a lie never confused the evil and the good when he sinned he knew it and repented it gives us confidence in his sincerity when we see him denying himself the use of wine because he was naturally prone to excess and yet allowing it to his friends who were able to use it temperately he was no puritan and on the other hand he was no slipshod condoner of vice or suave preacher of moral indifference his was a big honest soul trying hard to live straight along the line of duty and to do good as he found opportunity the kindness and generosity of his heart were known to few save his intimate friends and not always appreciated even by those who had most cause to be grateful to him the poor broken-down pensioners with whom he filled his house in later years and to whom he alluded playfully as his seraglio were constant sources of annoyance they grumbled perpetually and fought like so many cats but he would not cast them off any more than he would turn out his favorite mouser hodge for whom he used to go out and buy oysters lest the servants having the trouble should take a dislike to the poor creature he gave away a large part of his income in charity and what was still more generous he devoted a considerable portion of his time to counseling young and unsuccessful authors and note this reading their manuscripts i suppose if one had been a poverty-stricken beginner at literature in london of the eighteenth century the best thing one could have done would have been to find the way to dr johnson's house and tell him how the case stood if he himself had no money to lend he would have borrowed it from some of his friends and if he could not say anything encouraging about the manuscripts he would have been honest and kind enough to advise the unhappy aspirant to fame to prefer the life of a competent shoemaker to that of an incompetent scribbler much of what was best in the character of johnson came out in his friendships he was as good a lover as he was a hater he was loyal to a fault and sincere although never extravagant in his admirations the picture of the old man in his last illness surrounded by the friends whom he had cherished so faithfully and who now delighted to testify their respect and affection for him and brighten his lingering days with every attention has little of the customary horror of a deathbed it is strange indeed that he who had always been subject to such a dread of dying should have found it possible to meet the hour of dissolution with such composure his old friend sir joshua reynolds comes in to bid him farewell and johnson makes three requests of him to forgive him thirty pounds which he had borrowed from him to read the bible and never to use his pencil on a sunday good petitions which sir joshua readily granted although we cannot help fearing that he occasionally forgot the last tell me says the sick man to his physician can i possibly recover give me a direct answer being hard pressed dr brocklesby confesses that in his opinion recovery is out of the question then says johnson 
I will take no more physic, not even my opiates, for I have prayed that I may render up my soul to God unclouded. And so, with kind and thoughtful words to his servant, and a God bless you, my dear, to the young daughter of a friend who stood lingering at the door of his room, this sturdy old believer went out to meet the God whom he had tried so honestly to serve. His life was an amazing victory over poverty, sickness, and sin. Greatness alone could not have ensured, nor could perseverance alone have commanded, three of his good fortunes in this world, that Sir Joshua Reynolds painted his portrait, that Boswell wrote his biography, and that his wife said of him, he was the most sensible man she had ever met. End of chapter 10